I would guess that some of you are a little confused about our scripture reading this morning because it is the first Sunday of Advent and you come in here and expect something along the lines of Silent Night, Holy Night, and instead you hear a reading about the second coming of Christ. Ho, 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 welcome to Advent. Let's talk about the end of the world, right? Why? Why would the church traditionally choose this reading from the Gospel of Mark for the first Sunday of Advent? Well, friends, it's because we Christians understand that Christmas isn't an end in itself. Uh, Despite the fact that the secular culture is now in a full-court sprint to December 25th with the end goal being to get the right stuff under the tree, we know that Christmas is not an end but a beginning. In order to... uh, appreciate the true gift that the Christ child is, we need to look forward to who he will ultimately become, the Savior of the world, the one who will die for us and rise again, and the one who will ultimately return to rule over a new heaven and a new earth. But whether it's tradition or not, I know there are a lot of folks who are uncomfortable talking about the second coming of Christ. Because somewhere along the way, we have learned that the second coming of Christ, sometimes called the end of the world or the end times, is something to be afraid of. We're supposed to be scared of it. And I got to tell you, preachers have some responsibility for that. You know, old-time preachers regularly used to warn people, especially children, be afraid, be very afraid. Jesus can come back at any time. My grandmother, for example, was taught that you needed to be really scared because Jesus could come back at any time and he would be really upset. It would be your own personal end of the world if he showed up and found you playing cards or dancing. I have a colleague who's not much older than me who destroyed his entire record collection when he was a teenager because the preacher at his summer camp said, Jesus was going to come back at any time, and he would be very upset if he showed up and saw that you owned a record by the Beatles or the Captain and Tennille. So he got rid of everything. Then, of course, there are books like the Left Behind series and that classic by Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth. One of my favorites, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Surely Come in 1988. Uh, And then there are dozens and dozens and dozens of websites and YouTube channels all purporting to decode the Bible and predict the end of the world, and they paint a very frightening picture of the second coming. All of this, friends, is a recipe for complete panic, I think, so no wonder people are really afraid. If you don't take anything else away today from this sermon, I hope, friends, you will hear this that for those who love him, the coming of Jesus, whether at Christmas time or any time, is a reason for joy and celebration, not fear. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's my kind of religion. Now, this is, as I said, the first Sunday of Advent, and that means that today we're beginning a sermon series for the season. And it's called Songs of Christmas. And 
throughout these next few weeks, we'll be using classic Christmas songs, secular and religious, to help us focus on the themes of this holy season. And for this Sunday, I chose an oldie but a goodie. Santa Claus is coming to town. Y'all know that one? Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. I think the average kid would tell you that this song is a serious motivator for good behavior during the Christmas season. Especially that line, he's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. But the thing is, there are adults who think about God that way and read that sort of warning into our text from the Gospel of Mark. Speaking to his disciples about his return, Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or midnight or cockcrow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Now, friends, notice that right off the bat, Jesus says, no one can know God's plan for the second coming. No one can know. No one can know the day or the time, not even the angels in heaven. So what that means is that all of these books and websites and YouTube channels that purport to decode the Bible and predict the end of the world are seriously, seriously misleading. As my grandfather used to say, a lot of them are hokum. They're hokum, friends. We simply cannot know. Now, it is true that Jesus says to keep on watch, keep awake. But he's calling us to live in anticipation of his return, to live in a way that honors him all the time. He's not saying keep on guard, keep awake, because he's going to come back and drop the hammer. That's not the message of this passage, friends. No, when Jesus returns, when the second coming occurs, that means that the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. That means that justice and mercy will reign, that death will be permanently eradicated. In other words, love, grace will ultimately triumph it is sad to me, frankly, that there seem to be so many people who are intent, who just are intent on taking these promises of Christ and turning them into veiled threats about judgment and terrible punishment. You know, one of my favorite authors is the late Peter Gomes, who for many years was the chaplain at Harvard. And Gomes ended up an Episcopalian, but he began life in a southern four-square gospel kind of church, and you can hear it in his stories. Gomes says that when he was a child, no church service was complete until the preacher made an altar call and asked for everybody 
who felt moved by the Spirit to come down and, well, come to Jesus. And it was a referendum on that day's uh, sermon. And the energy that the preacher put into it, you know, as far as how many people would show up, no pressure on the preacher or anything like that. Well, Gomes said that when he was a teenager, he considered himself to be a very tough cookie, someone who could not be moved to come down front, even by the most charismatic preacher. Once he was at a youth rally in a huge tent. There were hundreds, he said, people there. And at the end of the youth rally, the preacher made the usual call for everybody to come down front and come to Jesus. And Gomes said about a third of the people there got up and came down front, which was pretty good. I mean, if I made an altar call and a third of you came down, I would be golden. I would be feeling really good about that. But apparently it was not enough for this guy. So after he prayed over the group that was down front, he then proceeded to tell some very colorful stories about people who had hesitated and then uh, been in a terrible car accident or been hit by a bus or suddenly dropped dead. Then he made another call, and some more people came down front, but not Gomes. Well, Gomes said that beside him sat a young man and his mother, and throughout all of this, the mother was glaring at Gomes and pinching her son's arm so hard it might fall off. And so eventually, the son gave in, and he went down front too, but not Gomes. Gomes said that the pressure just continued to ratchet up as this went on and on, and eventually, there were only about six people in the whole tent still sitting in their chairs, and he was one of them. And he said, he didn't go down that day. He just couldn't do it, he said, because it didn't feel like an invitation. It felt like intimidation. The implied message was, come down because you are very afraid of what will happen if you don't. Not, come down because don't you want to see what will happen if you do? Friends, I promise you that you will never hear me preach a sermon that threatens you to love and follow Jesus because he might come back at any time and punish you. I don't believe in mixing faith with fear. And frankly, I think it would be a, a travesty to take the words of the one who repeatedly reassured his disciples, be not afraid for I have overcome the world, Take those words and twist them in such a way as to plant fear in the hearts of those who love him today. Friends, the message of this text is not be on guard and be afraid. It's be on watch. Live in hope. Live expectantly. For we can count on it that our Lord who loves us will return to fulfill his kingdom now that sounds like a message of Advent, don't you think? I'll close with this. I had a very dear friend, a, a clergywoman that I served with for years who's now deceased, and she loved Christmas better than anything. 
She decorated her office with her own Christmas tree, huge. Played uh, carols on her stereo all season. Uh, she just adored the Advent and Christmas season, and in her house, she had, oh gosh, a couple dozen nativity scenes from all over the world. She collected them, and she put them out every year all around her home with one twist. The baby Jesus was missing from all of them. Now, people used to come to her house to see these. They were so beautiful, and, and she had a young son. So I think a lot of them figured that he was going around and taking the baby Jesus out of all of them and playing with them. You know how kids will do that. But that wasn't the case. The truth was that my friend held baby Jesus back herself. She had all of them in a bag in her dresser drawer. And the reason was because it reminded her that Advent is a season of watching and waiting, that it is a time of hope. Leaving Jesus out of those nativity scenes reminded her to live her life in such a way that she honored him as she waited for him and also reminded her that surely he was coming. It was only on Christmas Eve every year that she would go around in a little ritual and put Jesus back gently into every scene. I've never forgotten that. That small thing was such a powerful witness for me about the hope of Advent and the certainty of Christ's coming. People of faith, my church, do not be afraid. Do not fear. The coming of Jesus Christ for those who love him is a time of rejoicing and of celebration, whether that's at Christmas time or at any time. And in the meantime, we are called to live lives that honored him. We're called to live into this time of Advent and of hope, to watch, to wait, to live expectantly. And actually, you know what? We're called to live that way all the time, every day. Which, if you think about it, means that all of life is Advent. Not just these weeks leading up to Christmas. But all of life is Advent. Watching and waiting, living expectantly, looking forward for the day that our Lord will come and his kingdom will be fulfilled. My friends, the good news is that Jesus is coming to us. He is always coming to us. So live in hope. Live expectantly. Live a life that honors him. My friends, during Advent and all the time, Keep awake. Will you pray with me? My, my Lord and my God, how grateful I am, how grateful we all are for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, for the grace and the blessing that he brings into our lives. Lord, thank you for the hope that he plants within us and help us to look forward with great expectation and joy to his coming, not just at Christmas, but all the time. And as we watch and as we wait, may we live our lives in such a way that we honor him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.